We're in this series called Making Room for New Wine, in which we've covered quite a lot, to be quite honest. Uh, we've looked at, you know, getting ready. God's call on us is to be ready for this new thing that He's actually doing in our midst. We looked at how does servanthood relate to that. We looked at the, you know, the, the promise and the prerequisite almost in doing things with honor, you know, how we honor things. We looked at public faith, and if you remember, Bob came up and shared some stories. We talked about, you know, how a lot of evangelism, you know, I think can really, really be effective if we just love on people. Do you know that relational evangelism? We also looked at power and authority. Uh, we looked at embracing change with Mikey, and Peter talked last week on compassion. We realized compassion is just so much more than just giving out food. Compassion was actually the thing that motivated and moved Jesus to do many of the things that he's actually did. So, let me now talk about some of the difficult things, because I don't know if you read the news or you look at the, uh, the TV, social media, etc., but there's so many worrying and unpleasant things happening in our world today. And it's affecting every single one of us, whether we realize it or not. It affects us in different ways. But let me show you, or kind of clarify to you, a big picture the big picture today is it seems to be that we're in crisis after crisis causing disruption, you know, and situations that basically, you know, are so disruptive that the secular society does not have an answer for. No government actually has an answer for that. And if you were born in the area of baby boomers, that's kind of the 1950s through to the kind of 1962 would roughly be the end of it. I just creep in as a, as a baby boomer. Or right up to Gen X, any Gen Xs here? Gen <laughs> It's a generation. <laughs> okay. Gen Y, any millennials? Yeah. Ah, the millennials all know. Okay. With that, so that would be up to what year would that be? 97. 97 would be right up to that. So that period between, you know, the baby boomers and, you know, Gen, you know, millennials or Gen Y, uh, you were born relatively in a stable bubble in time. But that bubble has now been popped. That bubble has been popped. And what I mean by that is boomers right up to millennials were actually expected to become wealthier than what their parents were, able to travel further than what their parents traveled and achieve more than their parents actually achieved. But that stable period, you know, that time frame between those generations, it's now gone. Today, the new normal is that we are living in a destabilized world. That's the fact. The pace of life is now so much more faster there is more anxiety, stress, you know, division and confusion and busyness than what previous generations have ever experienced. Even with greater technological advancement, society has become more unstable and fragile than ever before. And if you study history, you know, from the boomers towards, you know, this present kind of day, there have always been moments, you know, of destabilization, but the vast majority were actually semi-localized, perhaps maybe only affecting one or maybe two countries. But today, because we live in such an interconnected, you know, globalized, you know, networked world, you know, everybody's affected. So, for instance, one crisis does not stand alone, you know, anymore. For example, the, the collapse of Bering Stream City Bank and the Lehman Brothers, that caused a global financial crisis. Do you remember that boat, the Evergreen, that actually a couple of years ago got stuck in the Suez Canal, and it was stuck there, grounded for six days? Do you know that caused months and months and months of shortages, you know, because of that, and everybody was affected. In fact, the war in Ukraine, 
the Hamas, Hezbollah, Israeli conflict, China and the Taiwan, you know, argument over territorial. You know, they're all adding to this escalating destabilization, producing a worldwide impact on economies, trade, commerce, you know, living standards, security, and also I've been hearing the threat of World War III. But let me give you another big picture, the answer, the solution, the antidote to that. God's solution is meant to be, guess what? No? <laughs> That's the only time Jesus is not the right answer. <laughs> nah, I've got to give him it. Jesus through the church, okay. Do you know, the, the answer is, is the local church. That's God's A plan. And do you know what? He doesn't have a B plan. doesn't have a B plan. The church, though, in the West, because there's a problem, the church in the West is in a reset moment in time. How we respond to that reset moment will determine whether the Western church has a future or the future has a Western church. It really will be depending on how we respond to it. In fact, the COVID crisis set the stage, you know, in the West for many falling away from church, you know, and also faith. Do you know, I'm generalizing, but some who used an attractional kind of program model, you know, for, for church have found that instead of producing radical reproducible kingdom culture carrying disciples, actually produced, you know, consumers. Unintentionally, I must say, consumers who aren't there anymore in church, church buildings. They came basically to get their needs met, you know, but didn't connect with the mission of Jesus to meet the needs of others. And that was a disconnect. It is as if they wanted all the trappings of the kingdom without actually engaging with the king. And it's also given to rise what we call something called progressive Christianity, and an attempt to be relevant to the culture and address some valid concerns, I might say, they've actually compromised the gospel. Here's a statement that I, I wrote earlier. You see, one of the abiding lessons of church history is that when the church tries to reach the world by being as progressive as the world and imitating the world, then it's not long before the church ends up as broken as the world. And what they have done in seeking to reform the faith, they've redefined it, reinterpreted it, and even rejected some of the essential doctrines of the faith, like the virgin birth. I know a minister that doesn't believe in the virgin birth. I'm like, what? Do you know, the deity of Christ, His resurrection. Do you know, in seeking to improve it, what they've done is they've actually left it behind. And in an ancient, what it basically is, guys, this is nothing new. This is an ancient heresy called Gnosticism and Marconianism that's been, re, you know, almost like repackaged, relabeled as new and revolutionary and progressive. But you know what? It's not. It's regressive. It's gone back to something hundreds of years that was actually, you know, exposed and dealt with by the early church. And, but I must say, it is appealing to people because they feel pulled sometimes between what God says and what their non-Christian friends and the culture says. But the Scriptures warn us about this constantly. And progressive Christianity actually redefines our understanding of the Bible in order to fit the culture so that we'll not feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so when you use the same words but give them now a new meaning, in effect what you have done is you've made a gospel in your own image. That's what we've actually done. And with the Bible remade in our own image, we are no longer then obliged to obey God or God's Word. Every church, every movement that I know of that's actually embraced this is actually in decline. In fact, this graph here, which breaks my heart when I read this graph, 
I don't take any delight in actually displaying this. This graph was charted by the church growth modeling you know, concept, and they took it from a period of 2015 to 2020. And they said, you know, the rate of current decline over that five years, you know, period, this is the estimated extinction, you know, of declining church UK denominations. Sadly, for some of those denominations, the decline has actually accelerated since then. So that is why you will always hear me say, guys, we have to be a people of His Word, and we have to be a people of His presence. Being a people of His Word will mean that you will find yourself actually going against the flow of culture, and I know that's uncomfortable. I'm not making any bones about that. It means that you might find yourselves at odds with this thing called identity politics, as they often conflict with the Word of God, and I know that's unpopular as well as uncomfortable. But you know what? Jesus said, if you follow Him, you need to pick up your cross. You need to pick up your cross, and do you know what? It won't always be easy, but I can guarantee you it's going to be glorious, going to be completely glorious. So what is a solution? Well, I believe the church, do you know, has always been God's solution. If she will arise, if she will arise from her slumber, do you know, in this reset moment and allow her wineskin to become flexible, flexible enough to allow our expectations to be radically raised. You know, that our faith levels would be raised, that we'd expect God to do something always, every day, everywhere. Flexible enough where God's experiences are welcomed, received, and they're also realized. Flexible enough so God expands our impact and we relish that and respond to His leading wherever it may take us. And do you know what? If we do that, I truly believe that we will see a renewal that will go viral and it will become a revival. Do you know, it's been 80 years since we've had a revival in the UK. I think we're ready for one. Amen? Yeah. A few of us, yeah. Amen. <laughs> and if we don't mess it up like previous generations and previous revivals, it has the potential of not just stopping it becoming a rival, revival, but actually becoming a reformation. That starts to affect governments. That affects, you know, education. That affects the healthcare. That affects everything. It affects business. Do you know, and you know what? If we don't stop at a reformation, it could lead to the renewal of all things, which might herald back the second coming of Jesus. And you're know, sitting there going, really, Jamie, the church? This wee church? Could we make a difference? I mean, there's a war going on. Do you know? There's actually, you know, countries in full recession, and you're saying that the answer lies maybe in this church. Do you believe it? Can you see it? Can you conceptualize it? Do you know, it, you need to do the maths on this. If all we did, each individual here, if all you did was win three people in your whole lifetime to Jesus, and you then discipled them and continued to disciple them, do you know, and they then won three people in their lifetime to Jesus and discipled them. And the process was repeated. The UK would be discipled in less than a decade. That's the maths. So if you had 40 people, there's more than 40 people in this room just now. And we did that, you know, that same kind of process. It would only take 37 years for the whole world to come to faith in Jesus. That's the maths. That's the power of the gospel. And you know what? It's not just about words. It's not just about words. It's about power as well. But it starts with the few, not the many. So much of our concept in the West is we've got to have all these big rallies. It starts with the one. It starts with the one and it multiplies. Do you know, love one thing. 
Do for the one that which you wish you could do for everyone. That's why we're reaching out to international students. What if you've got the next Paul Yonggi Cho or the next, you know, Jackie Pullinger or the next Watchman Nee and some of the international students that come and just see the gospel thrive and you were there to take them on that journey. You were there to help disciple them. What a legacy that would leave. It starts with the one. It also starts by not being led only by our intellect, but also being led by the Holy Spirit. So what's that got to do with this sermon, Jamie? Well, this presents a unique challenge and opportunities for the church as well as the gospel. We need to be prepared to share the good news of the gospel, be, you know, be the good news of the gospel, and demonstrate the good news of the gospel. In other words, if we, you know, if we learn to do the things to win people the way Jesus actually did it, then we would see evangelism with power. And we need every tool in the toolbox, guys. Let me define, you know, evangelism with power or power evangelism. Power evangelism is basically the presentation of the gospel, which is rational, but it also transcends the rational. It comes with a demonstration of the power of God, you know, through signs and wonders, and it actually introduces the very presence of God. I believe that every single presentation of the gospel has the potential of winning someone to actually Jesus. But I believe that there's also presentations that actually are specifically anointed and give us greater immediate access to the individual. And what I want to do is look at that from a biblical basis today, uh, and I want to share some various texts and scriptures with you, and then some personal experiences. So there's basically three subcategories to power evangelism. The first one is what we call the human predicament. This can be a pathway, you know, for God to use to bring people into salvation. So we're going to look at John's gospel, chapter 4, and we'll pick it up at verse 43. It says, after the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Canaan and Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now here we have the human predicament. Someone in my family is sick. My child is sick. There is nothing more powerful, nothing more motivating when a loved one is sick and in great need, and especially a child, especially a child. So this man came to Jesus, you know, highly motivated. He had heard about Jesus' reputation. So he approaches Jesus and he begs him to come and heal his son who's close to death. Verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still in the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household did what? believed. A healing occurs, and a whole household is converted as a result of power evangelism. One person is touched, and as a result, a whole family comes to Christ. But you might be saying, well, that's okay for Jesus. 
You know, I mean, after all, it's Jesus, eh? But what about his followers? Well, let's look at Peter. Peter in Acts chapter 9. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydia. There he found a man named Ananias, a paralytic who'd been bedridden for eight years. Ananias, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. Immediately, Ananias, get up. All those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So let's look at the story of Ananias' healing. First of all, it's important to recognize that Ananias had actually been bedridden for eight years. Now, you may not be aware of this, but nearly all the major kind of healings in the New Testament is actually healings of chronic conditions. Now, there are some summary texts, but the individual accounts tend to be of chronic conditions. So it's important to note that Jesus is in the business of healing people who have had conditions over long periods of time. And the reason that I'm saying that to you is, as you start praying for the sick, you're all going to come across conditions in people where you think, wow, this is a hard one. This is a big one. This is hard. They've had this for so long. But what I want you to know is, it's not hard for Jesus. It's only hard, you know, for us. And anyway, we can't heal anyone, can we? Except through him. So here's Peter. He walks over to Ananias. He says to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Pick up your mat and walk. Now, where did Peter learn that? Well, Peter learned that in Matthew chapter 9 because that's exactly how Jesus healed paralytics. Peter was a disciple, do you know, of Jesus. And when he was brought into a situation like what he'd seen Jesus in, all he'd done was he said and he did what he'd seen Jesus do and say. It's not complicated. And look at the result, verse 35, all those who lived in Lydia and Sharon, do you know, turned to the Lord. Two whole villages converted and turned to the Lord because of the healing of one man. Can you see how this has a multiplication effect? Now, he could have went door-to-door evangelism. He could have presented tracts at the local supermarket. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's good work. That's essential work. But it's also important that we, you know, expand our ways to do evangelism, look for when God actually gives us these kind of unctions, these kinds of anointings that will produce these kind of results whilst we're doing it. I was asked to go and speak at a Church of Scotland Social Board of Responsibility Conference that they held in Carberry Towers. And they were looking at the subject of healing, whether they would introduce that to a Sunday service or create a different service. And so they asked me to speak and they asked the Reverend uh, Canon John Gunston, who just wrote a book for the Anglicans called A Time to Heal. And so I went in and they gave us a little brief on what we were to speak out before. And uh, I said, so, okay, so the the remit is I, I have to you know, speak about healing, you know, how we do it, etc. I said, and then we'll do healing, eh? And he went, no, 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 that, that's not what we're asking you to do. And I was like, sorry? <laughs> you want me to teach on healing, but you don't want us to do healing. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're just exploring it. I said, but wouldn't it be even amazing if people actually seen it, eh? And he looked at me as if I had kind of like two heads or something, you know? And I said, come on, you're not asking a, a vineyard guy to come here, teach about healing, and then not, you know, do anything not to pray for anyone. Can I at least pray for people? And they said, no, you're not allowed to pray for anyone unless they ask you to pray for them. I went, this is weird. This is real. This is not what I read in the book. <laughs> you know, this is not what I read. We just discuss it. We don't do the stuff. And so anyway, uh, we did the conference. I'm speaking on healing. And I'm biting my lip because I'm not allowed to pray for anyone. I'm not allowed to suggest 
you know, God could he you know, heal them or anything. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching everybody file out the room. All these ministers and church leaders file out the room. Until there was one gentleman and uh, him and his friend get up and his friend helped him get up. And he came over to me and he came over to me like this. He throws his foot out like that. And it's really rigid and stiff, you know. And he says, would you pray for me? And I was like, yes. You know, I was so excited that I got to pray for him. I said, what's wrong with you? And he says, well, actually, my ankle is fused to my leg, so I, I can't bend it. I can't bend it, you know. And so I have to throw my leg forward. And he said, obviously, I hit my heel. It creates pressure on my knee whenever I do that. He said, and I just feel so awkward because it takes me ages to get out of rooms and go into rooms. And I'm a minister, you know, in, in a church. And he explained where the church was. And he said, it's just awkward. And I said, I'd love to pray for you. So I get down and I held his, uh, his, his leg like that. And I prayed and said, come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name be. And it went, <coughs> and I went, oh my goodness, I broke it. <laughs> I made it worse. And he went, he started to move it. And I was like, wow. And we were so excited, but it was only the three of us in the room. And so I said, look, I want to check in on you how, how, how things are doing. And so the next day, I went up to him, you know, in the conference, and uh, Canon John Gunston was speaking. I said, how's, how's, your, how's your foot? He's like, I'm in agony. I was like, oh, no. He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, no. He said, I've never been able to do this. I did nine laps of Cadbury Towers yesterday, and all the muscles are all sore, you know, today because I've done that. And he kept in touch with me. And I'm telling you this story, and you think, well, Jamie, he was a Christian. He was a Christian. How does that have an evangelistic effect? Well, he said to me, he said, Jamie, my church is growing because everyone in the town and the village is coming to see the crippled vicar who isn't crippled anymore. He says, and the Holy Spirit's touching them because of the miracle because they've known me all my life to be like that. This is power evangelism, partnering with the Holy Spirit in that moment, not knowing what the ramifications could actually be, and God meeting the human predicament through his spiritual gifts. Now, please hear this. Do you know, not everyone that we pray for gets healed. Now, I've explained that why that is in previous sermons, but I can tell you story after story with just being faithful to praying for people, and even though people didn't get healed, God still saved people in the process. I've seen Linda and I lead people to faith in a funeral service. Even though the person in the coffin that we prayed for didn't get healed, we've still seen salvation come, you know, during that service as well. So, Peter is on a roll. Let me go on, verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated as Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydia was near Joppa, and when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydia, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. So obviously, the funeral's actually begun here, okay? And to be quite honest, people don't like to have their funerals interrupted, especially with abortive attempts, you know, to raise the deceased. But look what the bull Peter does. Verse 40, he sent them all out of the room. Now, where did he learn that? Well, that is what he saw Jesus do at the home of Jairus when he interrupted a funeral. Then he got down on his knees and prayed, turning towards the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. Again, where did he learn that? Well, again, it's exactly what Jesus had said that Jairus' daughter, you know, if you remember. 
she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. Now, at every single point, Peter did exactly what he's seen Jesus doing. Do you understand something about discipleship now? It's learning to do and say and believe what your master does, says, and believe. That is part of discipleship, and that's exactly what Peter does. And then in verse 42, this became known over, sorry, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Now, we don't know how many believed, but we know many believed. Do you see this relationship between healing, and in this case, the raising of the dead and the impact that it has in a community? Now, let's look to another uh, one. Uh, another category, and let's call it the divine appointment. This is where God may use, you know, spiritual gifts or spiritual phenomena to bring, you know, a believer and connect them with a non-believer. So we're going to look at how God sets up a Christian to be at the right place at the right time with a non-believer. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, where it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. Now talk about a divine appointment here. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, most of us just read that kind of quickly, you know, and don't think about it. I want you to think about this. What if tomorrow morning when you get up, an angel of the Lord appeared in your room and said, I want you to go down the buyer's road and do this and so? Wouldn't that be exciting, eh? Wouldn't that be something to look forward to? Well, some of you think, well, I'm crazy, but this is exactly what happens to this man, and it still happens today. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, let me explain why I think an angel came. This is a very important official. The Secret Service would have been all around him, guys with swords, big jaggy things called spears. To approach him would be death. You know, with it. And I think an angel appeared to him, so it wasn't just a little solution, but this is a serious thing, and he knew you know that something was about to happen. Verse 28, and on his way home, he was on his way home sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As he traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. And he gave him orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went in his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he had reached Caesarea. And I've jumped one too much. 
So here's a divine appointment, an occasion where the Spirit of God organizes and orchestrates a follower of Jesus and a potential convert. He puts them together exactly at the right situation, exactly at the right moment, and it's all the work of a divine appointment where God organizes it. Now, at this point, I normally share stories of divine appointments, you know, that God has led me into, you know, and where people have came to faith, you know, or took maybe a step towards Jesus. But I want to take this opportunity to share with you one of my failure stories, okay? Because I failed at this. Not only once, I've done it, failed a few times. I remember, well, let me say this. In my life, at times, I'm pretty bold. I'm pretty bold, you know, at different times. But then there's other times that I'm filled with fear and doubts, just like anyone else. See, one of, my, one of the things I, I, I don't want you to ever hear when we stand up here and we just tell you success stories that you don't realize as many failure stories to get the success stories, okay? This is accessible. This can sometimes be uncomfortable. But you know what? If we don't step out and try, we'll never know. And I would rather fail a hundred times and still hit one of the success stories than never try and be safe completely. So it was just before Christmas uh, one year um, in one of the card shops in uh, Brayhead. I see a little girl about 10 years of age with her mum and there's a teddy bear, you know, in a basket full of teddy bears. And this kid goes and grabs one and she's cuddling you know, this teddy bear. And it's one of those moments that make you smile. Just see this cute little kid with a teddy bear kind of cuddling it. But her mom says, no, you can't have that. Christmas is just about to come. Do you know? And you know what? At that moment, as I heard that and I looked, I thought I heard the Holy Spirit say, go buy the teddy bear and give it to the child. And I thought, what a great way, you know, to live out the message of grace. This might be a divine appointment where, you know, I might be leading this lady to the Lord or praying, you know, for her family or something like that. But you know what? I get scared. I get scared thinking and worrying how the mum might react. Would I cause a scene in a packed shop? Do you know? So I didn't, and I left the shop. And I was kicking myself afterwards thinking, I missed an opportunity to express God's love in a practical way there. That might not seem a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to me at the time. And who knows what conversations could have developed, you know, with that one simple act. And I thought, how much did I actually love God and love people in that situation? And I realized I didn't. I didn't. My wine skin was not flexible enough to step into what God was calling me to do. I succumbed to the fear of man and I missed out and perhaps the mum and maybe the child missed out. And do you know what? See, when I come now up against times like this or like that, I remind myself of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, because God did not give us a spirit that makes us afraid, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And I resolved that I would never give in to fear again. And do you know what? I've never given in to fear since that. You know, it doesn't mean I've succeeded all the time, still failed, but you know what? I keep going for it. And that's all God asks us to do. Be available. Let me come into land by looking at the third counter, uh, category called power encounter. Power encounter is a clashing of God's power with the power of Satan. Alan Tippett originally defines this term where the gospel is preached in an adverse circumstances, yet the gospel prevails. Do you know, Acts 13, I believe, is an occasion of a power encounter. It's an occasion where Paul comes before the pro-council, and we'll f pick it up at verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Pathos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer, 
a false prophet named Burgesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So here's the picture. The stage is set. He wants to hear the word of God. Now, with the act of sending for Paul, he has actually set into motion a response on the part of Elimaeus, who represents the enemy. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimaeus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So what's going on here? Well, this is a form of spiritual warfare that we talked about in a previous series. And I want you to note something. This is a man under the enemy's tutelage and direction and empowering, trying to stop another man from hearing the truth concerning the gospel. Can you see that? Verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that means, you know, it's an unction and anointing for what's about to happen. He was empowered by the Spirit for the thing he's about to do. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimaeus and said, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Not politically correct today, is it quite? But there you go. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind. And for a time, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Now, folks, that kind of language is not calculated to win friends and influence people, is it? This is not an amicable way of having a little discussion here. Let's have a little religious debate here, guys. This is actually a drawing a line in the sand. This is a face-off. This is saying, get out of my way. I've got a gospel to preach here. No man and no spirit is going to stop me from doing that. But notice the response. Immediately, I love that word, immediately, mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I mean, isn't that a graphic, you know, response? Isn't that powerful? But note the response here to the proconsul. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed. Amazed at what? At the teaching. What teaching? He's not done any teaching yet. Well, I think it was a graphically illustrated teaching. One guy's got more power than the other guy. One guy says something, another guy goes blind. I'm going to listen to the guy who's got something to actually say. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Amazed about the teaching about the Lord. See, from time to time, as you get out and do this stuff, you will meet opposition. It constantly happened to Jesus and his disciples. And I think we can expect things to, opposition to actually happen to us at times, especially as we press in in the enemy's territory and start to advance the kingdom of God by praying for people. From time to time, he will push back, and you may be surprised at the things he uses to push back on you with, you know, maybe friends, maybe families. We did a sermon, do you know, on that in the last series. What was the time? I'm running out of time. I can share story after story where we've seen power encounters where demonized people or people under the influence of spirits have tried to stop the gospel being shared. We've seen it happen in conferences when we've got up to speak. In fact, we've seen it happen at Hillhead Subway standing, you know, down in Byers Road when we were, you know, praying for people, etc. It's, it's a cracking story. I'll tell you it some, some other time. We've seen it, you know, in all sorts of, I've seen it in the workplace, you know, when I used to work in engineering. So these are, are various subcategories that I would entitle power evangelism. Now, why would we need to get involved with anything like this? Well, we live in a gospel-hardened, secular culture where truth alone 
doesn't necessarily win people to Jesus. We need Jesus. We need his presence. Today's Remembrance Day, a day when we remember the sacrifice of so many who fought for freedom for the UK in its darkest hour. Big picture, I would put it to you that today we are once again in dark times. So we are. And we're fighting not against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of this dark world and the evil spirits of the heavenly places, influencing our society and affecting our culture. Now, in order to change that, we need his word and we need his presence. And to step out the board and our comfortability at times and take back ground that the church has lost that once was ours, that Jesus gave to us. And in this reset moment, he is calling us to be like a new wineskin, to embrace change. I told you about the testimony this morning, you know, about Tamsin. You know, three of our kids the week previously got saved. There was healings, you know, happening two weeks, you know, ago. Guys, this stuff's already happening and has been for months, in fact, years, you know, in our church. We're already seeing the breakthroughs. It's like being given a tiny piece of a 30,000-piece jigsaw. Now, by faith, we know that there's a bigger picture that we cannot see or maybe even understand, but it's good, it's glorious, it's a wonderful picture to behold and actually to see come together. But you know what? Free will presents choices to us as to whether we accept that part of the jigsaw and be part of it or not. Equally, the same free will determines whether I'll have a part to play in this bigger, you know, picture or not. The choice is, what will I do with what I've been given? Even if the answers that I'm seeking do not, you know, satisfy or meet my immediate predicament. Will I press in? Will I back off? Guys, the times are changing. And I believe the clarion call is to press in and seek him and embrace the changes that he's asking this church to make. And if we do so, once again, we will see our nation flourish by the praising of his name, the preaching of his word, and the demonstration of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven. Are you up for the change? Amen. Why don't we stand?